This summer, L.L. Bean wants to help you feel great out there with gear, tips, and advice for heading outdoors and exploring all the possibilities of the season. One easy addition you can make to your camping and hiking wardrobe to help keep you cool is a bandana. This headwear hero will keep sweat out of your eyes, bugs out of your hair, and sun off your neck. And you can even dip it into water and then put it under your hat or around your neck to keep you cool. A hot weather must have. For more fun ideas, easy how-tos, and inspiring stories, visit llbean.com slash guide. The scientist behind one of the longest studied plots of land in a U.S. national park. A researcher who inspired dozens of students to study our nation's most treasured sites. And the National Park Service's oldest park ranger. What do they all have in common? They're all women. It's been over 100 years since the national park system in the United States was established. During that time, women have played a huge yet often unrecognized role in many of our nation's most illustrious landscapes, from the coast of Maine to the San Francisco Bay. I'm Jason Epperson, and on today's episode, we'll discuss some women trailblazers that have shaped our national parks. We'll touch on their contributions and legacy and how their efforts helped pave the way for women connected to the National Park Service today. Our first individual is a celebrated botanist, alpine tundra ecologist, and the first female member of the Council on Environmental Quality in the Executive Office of the President of the United States, Dr. Beatrice Willard. Dr. Willard's curiosity for the great outdoors spans a lifetime. Born in 1925, she spent her childhood surrounded by the Sonoran Desert in Palm Springs and the mountains of the Sierra Nevada in California. California greatly inspired her father, who was a well-known landscape photographer. He opened his first gallery in downtown Palm Springs in 1921 and produced thousands of photographs over the course of his career, many of which remain on display today. Encouraged by her family to nurture her interests in nature, Dr. Willard studied biological sciences at Stanford University and went on to attend the National Park Service Yosemite Field School in 1947. Breaking into the National Park Service workforce wasn't easy for Dr. Willard. She first worked as a high school teacher before finally securing a position as a seasonal interpretive ranger at Lava Beds National Monument and Crater Lake National Park in 1952. But Dr. Willard wasn't quite done with her schooling yet. She went on to study alpine ecology in Europe. She attended graduate school at the University of Colorado, where she earned her master's and Ph.D. Her research at the University of Colorado focused on how humans affect the sensitive alpine tundra ecosystems along Trail Ridge Road in Rocky Mountain National Park. Parking lots had increased human traffic in the area, destroying vegetation, removing lichen from rocks, and wearing down the soil. The fate of these ecosystems would be a 40-year endeavor 
of Dr. Willard's. Over these four decades, she would become one of the most notable influencers of environmental policy development and implementation. Dr. Willard began her tenure at the Thorne Ecological Institute in Boulder, Colorado, after her Ph.D., she quickly made her way up to the president of the Institute. She focused on taking varied ecological approaches to solving some of the state's most pressing conservation problems. She was tasked with directing 25 different construction projects in which both environmental and economic costs had to be weighed. The methods used in her decision-making process were advanced for the time, even predating the National Environmental Policy Act, which now requires federal agencies to evaluate the environmental effects of their actions. One of her most notable cases involved the fight for national protection of the fluorescent fossil beds, which represent some of the most abundant and well-preserved insect and plant fossils from the Eocene, a time period dating back 34 million years. Her efforts and persistence paid off, and President Nixon made the Fluorescent Fossil Beds National Monument official on August 20, 1969. Dr. Willard was named Conservationist of the Year by the Colorado Wildlife Federation that same year for her efforts. She became one of the go-to scientists for state lawmakers, including Colorado governors. She had a remarkable ability to bridge the words of environmental ecology and business. She even convinced Bill Coors of the Coors Brewing Company to start canning their beer in recyclable aluminum cans. Her experience at the intersection of science and public policy landed her a spot on the Council on Environmental Quality with the federal government in 1972, the first woman to be appointed to such a role. She spent the next four years advising, developing, and implementing environmental policy. Appointed by both Presidents Nixon and Ford, Dr. Willard served as a catalyst for sweeping changes in how public lands were managed in the United States. She returned to Colorado in 1977 to establish the Department of Environmental Sciences and Engineering Ecology at the Colorado School of Mines. Awards for her work began to stack up and included the Edward Hobbs Hilliard Award in 78, the Environmental Stewardship Distinguished Service Award in 79, the U.S. Forest Service's 75th Anniversary Award in 1980, the United Nations Outstanding Environmental Leadership Award in 1982, and more. Dr. Willard passed away in 2003. In 2007, her study plots in Rocky Mountain National Park along Trail Ridge Road were designated as historic places on the National Register. Her influence as an ecologist, educator, and public servant continues to live on and inspire not only the study of alpine tundra habitats, but the inclusion of policy and economics in environmental decision-making. Our next trailblazing woman vital to the history of the National Park Service is touted as the first female geologist in America. Dr. Florence Bascom. Like Dr. Willard, Dr. Bascom's family encouraged her to pursue her interest in the sciences at a time when women were not typically presented such opportunities. Born in 1862, Dr. Bascom's childhood was marked with norms that restricted the role women were expected to play in society. 
but her parents bucked that notion and both were heavily involved in the women's rights movement. Her father became the president of the University of Wisconsin in 1874 and insisted that the university start accepting female students. Women were permitted to attend a year later in 1975, and Dr. Bascom started her undergraduate studies shortly after. She excelled, receiving a degree in the arts in 1882 and a Bachelor of Science two years later. It was no surprise then that she opted to continue her studies as a graduate student. It was during her time as a master's student that Dr. Bascom discovered her deep and intensive interest in geology. Ever the academic with a curious mind, she decided to specialize in an area of geology called petrography, which focuses on describing and classifying geological materials. Petrography is complex. It involves the microscopic examination of thin sections of objects like rocks in an effort to determine its mineral content structure and other descriptors. Having only been established in 1828, petrography was a relatively new field. She soon found her niche in the world of science and wanted to obtain her doctorate from Johns Hopkins University. But the president of Johns Hopkins at the time opposed the co-education of women, and Dr. Bascom faced a petition process in order to be admitted. The university obliged so long as she sat behind a screen in the corner of the classroom so as not to distract her fellow male students. Not only did Dr. Bascom become the first woman to earn a Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins, but she was only the second woman to earn a Ph.D. in geology in the entire United States. Post-Ph.D., she took a teaching position at the then-all-girls Bryn Mawr College. Her desire to make geology a more accessible field to females led to her founding the college's Department of Geology soon after her arrival. Her reputation as a scientist and academic gained traction, and she found herself as the first woman to work for the U.S. Geological Survey in 1896, which is when her work in Acadia National Park on Mount Desert Island in Maine took off. Acadia National Park is a geologist's dream. It holds vital clues to unlocking our understanding of past changes in climate and sea level. Dr. Bascom was tasked with surveying Mount Desert Island along the Atlantic coastline, much of which is covered by land belonging to Acadia. She published her report outlining the findings of her work on the island in 1919, just three years after the National Park Service had officially been established, roping Acadia National Park into a larger federal park system. Dr. Bascom continued to teach at Bryn Mawr College during the school year and worked with the U.S. Geological Survey during the summers. In both positions, she feverishly shared her passion and knowledge of all things geological. Numerous female geologists trained under Dr. Bascom, including Dr. Anna Jonas Stowes, who mapped the Appalachian Mountain Range, and geologist Isabel Fothergill-Smith, who would write and publish a memoir about Dr. Bascom later in life. Dr. Bascom passed in June 1945. She remains affectionately known by the National Park Service as the Stone Lady. We'll be back in a moment, but first, a quick break for a message from our favorite place to search for the best campground for your national park adventures, Campendium. Campendium lists virtually every campground in North America and every type of campsite you can imagine. 
from remote backcountry tent sites to RV parks with water slides and pickleball courts. You can search by price, including free or by cell service, elevation, whether pets are allowed. Dozens of different search filters will bring you detailed user reviews so you can find the best campsite for your trip. Campendium is free at campendium.com or on the app, and you can upgrade to a RoadPass Pro membership to unlock an ad-free experience with more detailed cell service reports, public land map overlays, trail maps, and more. A RoadPass Pro membership also includes other premium apps like Togo RV and Road Trippers. Visit campendium.com or download the app today and save $10 off a RoadPass Pro membership with code RVMILES10X. Our next highlighted woman played a key role in African-American representation in America's national park system and holds a record that will surely be hard to beat. Betty Reed Soskin Betty Reed Soskin was born in 1921 in Detroit, Michigan, in a Cajun Creole African-American family. Her family relocated to New Orleans in 1924, where her early years would become dominated by the Great Flood of 1927, which forced her family to move from Louisiana to Oakland, California, where her grandfather had settled after World War I. Like many African-American families, the Soskins hoped that a move out west would allow them to be less impacted by racial hostility in the South. She graduated high school and went on to work for the United States Air Force in 1942. But her employment there was short-lived. She left soon after she found out that her employers would not have hired her had they known she was black. She moved on and took another position at the Black Auxiliary Lodge in the International Boilermakers Union. After the war, she and her husband opened up one of the first black-owned record stores in the Bay Area in 1945. What started off a small enterprise showed the potential to grow into a thriving business, and Soskin was soon able to enroll her children in higher-ranked private schools in the suburbs. Soskin's family moved to the predominantly white neighborhood of Walnut Creek in the 1950s. Here, they would face considerable levels of racism, including death threats. Music became an outlet for the injustices Soskin faced on a daily basis. She was a gifted songwriter and used her talents to write melodies for civil rights activists in the 1960s. She became increasingly involved in community affairs and civic matters in the 70s and eventually found herself as a field representative working with the city of Richmond in California and the National Park Service. She became increasingly involved in community affairs and civic matters in the 1970s and eventually found herself as a field representative working with the city of Richmond in California and the National Park Service to plan a park to commemorate the role women played on the home front during World War II. Soskin's involvement was key not only because she lived it, but because she lived it as a black woman. Work on the home front at that time was still largely segregated. Discrimination was rampant, and Rosie the Riveter had varied symbolism for her based on those experiences. Soskin fiercely advocated that these stories, an experience she lived herself, be included in the park's educational, interpretive, and historical materials. Her story was deeply connected to the park, and she cemented, quite literally, a legacy representative of black women working on the home front for generations to come by the time the park was completed in 2000. 
Her involvement in the park's planning, dedication to activism, and experience in public service led her to be hired as a National Park Service Ranger in 2004. If you're doing the math, she was 84 years old at the time. She took the responsibility of sharing what she and other black women experienced during World War II very seriously and became one of the park's most popular rangers. Recognition of her work was soon noticed, and she was presented with a presidential commemorative coin by President Obama in 2015. She received numerous other awards and honors and retired in 2022. If you're doing the math again, she was 100 years old, the oldest National Park Service ranger on record. Her memory is still sharp as she recalls the view of the San Francisco Bay before it became dominated by the new iconic Golden Gate Bridge and the excitement of Amelia Earhart's takeoffs and landings from the Oakland International Airport. Soskin continues to weave music, storytelling, and her passion for activism to inspire those around her. Female National Park employees play critical roles in representation, education, environmental protection, and public service. However, acknowledgement of the ability of women to contribute to the National Park Service was an uphill battle in many ways and remains so. The National Park Service was established on August 25, 1916 and joined together a network of 14 national parks and 21 monuments. One female was already working at Wind Cave, which would become Wind Cave National Park in 1916, signaling a promising start to the inclusion of women as park employees. Unfortunately, women would remain few and far between in the Park Service for decades, and in the early years of the Park Service, were only hired due to their connections or extenuating political circumstances, despite being well-qualified for the job. The first paid female ranger on record is Esther L. Brazel. Her father, Thomas Brazel, became the supervisor of Wind Cave National Park before the Park Service even existed. She was hired on as a ranger in July of 1916, a month before President Woodrow Wilson signed the act creating the National Park Service. Brazel was hired on a temporary basis as one of three rangers, and her father had to regularly request her to be appointed. During one such request in 1918, the assistant director of the National Park Service pushed back, claiming that he was not satisfied with the suitability of Brazel to perform park-related duties. Not only that, but the assistant director went on to state that the National Park Service would increase Wind Cave National Park's funding if they had hired a male for the position. Russell's father countered, stating that she was the only individual capable of serving in the area as a guide. After reducing her pay, the National Park Service agreed to the appointment but later redacted it 15 days later, claiming that after reconsideration, Wind Cave National Park didn't need a third ranger after all. According to records, Brazel's father also requested that Fida C. Nielsen, a friend of Brazel's, be employed as a guide in 1918. Her time and status at Wind Cave National Park is unclear, but if appointed, Nielsen would have been the second woman serving as a paid ranger in the park system. The continued swell of America's involvement in World War I limited the male workforce in the United States, including the Park Service. This opened up doors for women who were hired to fill their positions on temporary bases. However, women during this time were rarely titled as rangers. They were rather referred to as naturalists or visitor youth assistants. 
women were also often not permitted to wear the National Park Service uniform. Of notable exception is Claire Marie Hodges, the first female ranger at Yosemite National Park, who was hired in the summer of 1918. While permitted to wear the Park Service uniform, she was not allowed to carry a firearm. Hodges was also not likely paid the same wage as her male counterparts in the same position, although a record from Glacier National Park in 1918 surprisingly listed Helen Wilson as receiving the same pay rate as the male park rangers hired alongside her. Like Brazel, women who were hired into the National Park Service as rangers were often related to or had connections to males already working in the service. Yellowstone National Park's first female ranger, Marguerite Lindsley, is one such example. Lindsley's father was the park's assistant superintendent, and she had grown up there. Even with her ties to the park and a college education, she was placed on a temporary ranger basis until 1925 when she was finally offered a full-time position. She was the first female in the National Park Service to serve as a full-time ranger. But Lindsay had already broken the mold by demanding that the National Park Service uniform be made for women. She ended up having to make her own, but other females soon followed suit and copied her design with changes as needed. While the above women proved that a female was more than capable of doing the job, systemic changes didn't occur until the 60s and 70s. Feminism started to drive the wheels of change forward, and the National Park Service issued a directive that hiring should be based on qualifications alone. However, this was still only stipulated for certain positions. Women could not be hired for positions that required hazardous or strenuous work, fighting fires or rescue operations. In addition, the directive encouraged the women specifically to be hired for children's programs as they were deemed typically more effective than men. The passing of Title XI in 1972 opened up the floodgates for female employment in all national park positions, including the park police, which was mandated to do away with a 5'8 height requirement that had limited the number of women who could apply. Women continued to become more equally represented in the National Park Service as the 20th century came to a close. In 2001, the National Park Service even welcomed its first female director, Fran Manila. Unfortunately, Manila's reputation would suffer from the claim that she assisted in allowing the illegal removal of 130 trees from the property of the then-owner of the then-Washington Redskins football team. Manila resigned as director in 2006, and Mary Bomar was appointed in her place. She served through the end of the Bush administration, and focused on increasing the capacity of the national park system to re-engage the American people with their national parks in preparation for the 100-year anniversary of the agency in 2016. Despite momentum in the forward direction, women continued to face challenges working in the park service and remained disproportionately underrepresented. As of 2020, only 38% of the National Park Service's permanent employees were categorized as women. Numbers based on position and pay grade are similarly favorable to men. 56% of lower-tiered positions are held by women, but only 36% of mid-tiered positions, and 42% of higher-tiered positions. Diversity, of course, is also not well represented. 82% of Park Service women are white, 
while only 8% are black, 6% Hispanic, 3% Asian, and 3% American Indian or Alaska Native. Fortunately, previous data can at least give us some hope for the future. National Park Service records show that only 20% of their permanent employees were women in 1975. The jump to 38% is promising, even if it's taken 45 years. The National Park Service has also shown some initiative in supporting programs that foster the inclusion of women. For example, a pilot program to create two all-women fire crews was launched in 2021. There's still a lot of work to be done, but women, as they always have in the National Park Service, are rising to the occasion, crushing barriers that block their paths, speaking up about the injustices they face, and inspiring the next generation of National Park enthusiasts to continue working towards equality. This episode of America's National Parks was written by Dr. Charlotte Hacker, and I'm your host, Jason Epperson. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review. And if you're new here, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes delivered to your feed. If you're looking for photos and tips about visiting national parks, check out our America's National Parks Facebook group. And if you're interested in RV travel, we hope you'll also check out the RV Miles podcast and YouTube channel. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. And by Campendium. Find listings and reviews for thousands of campsites for your next national park adventure at Campendium.com. <laughs>